Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 17 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Marullo. Thank you so much for joining me again. Well, in the last episode, I was talking about a Hungarian composer, very famous one, Franz Liszt. Today, I'm going to be talking about another Hungarian composer who I've mentioned in prior episodes, except this is a composer of the 20th century, Bela Bartok. He lived from 1881 to 1945. I've spoken about 20th century music in the past, and as you know, it can be challenging. The reason is because 20th century composers are often writing in a very new language. They're not using necessarily the tonal language that we're all familiar with of Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. Many of them are inventing their own musical language. Now, although these are new musical languages, they could certainly contain structures that we see in tonal music. For example, when I was talking about the French Impressionist, a composer, Claude Debussy, we were talking about how he was using a lot of familiar structures, structures that everybody's familiar with, like a major chord or a minor chord or a seventh chord. These are chords that go way back to Bach's time and even beyond that. But the way he was manipulating the chords, the way he was treating them was new. Those chords were not functioning like they usually do in tonal music. In tonal music, there are certain progressions. One chord leads to another. Well, Debussy was ignoring that to create certain effects with impressionistic music. He was trying to create colors, sound colors with these chords. So musicologists and music theorists will say he was using the chords non-functionally. And in the case of Bella Bartok, he's doing something very similar. If you look at Bartok's music, you could certainly see structures that we're familiar with. You might see a major scale or a minor scale or a major chord or a minor chord. But he also uses a lot of exotic scales, scales that are not common to Western European music, but they might be common to Eastern music, music of Asia, for example. Or he might be experimenting with 20th century techniques like polytonality, where there's more than one key at the same time, or at least the chords are implying more than one key at the same time. He also might be experimenting with very unique 20th century performance effects. For example, he might ask a string player to pluck the string, that's called pizzicato, but pluck it in such a way that the string rebounds off the instrument and gives a kind of snapping sound. Sometimes performers are not crazy about doing that. Or he might ask the string player to turn the bow upside down and use the wood of the bow instead of the usual hairs of the bow. That's usually notated in the music as colenio, which means with the wood of the bow. In order to fully appreciate Bartok's language, and it is Bartok's language, it's the Bartok style, you really have to take courses in 20th century music. So we're not going to dive deep into that, because if I did, we'd be here for quite a while. And you have other things to do besides this podcast. What I would like to do is introduce you to one of his latest pieces. It's called Concerto for Orchestra. And in going through some of the more notable passages, we'll get a pretty firm idea about his style and how he manipulates notes to create a certain effect. Bartok finished this piece only a couple years before he died in 1943. And at the time, he had moved to America and was living in New York City but he lectured a lot in Harvard, and as a matter of fact, this particular piece was premiered by the Boston Symphony Orchestra under a very famous conductor, Sergei Kozovitsky. Now, you may be wondering about the title. This is a very unique title, Concerto for Orchestra. Usually, a concerto is for a solo instrument or a couple of solo instruments. 
for instance, a piano concerto, a trumpet concerto, a violin concerto, but this is called Concerto for Orchestra. It's not called a symphony. And Bartok called it Concerto for Orchestra because there are a lot of solo-like passages for the orchestra where a particular section, let's say the strings or the brass, were playing very virtuosic, difficult passages that were reminiscent of a concerto because in a concerto, the soloist definitely has the more difficult part, the virtuosic passages. And in this particular piece, there are passages that are very much like a concerto and that there's one or maybe two people playing a solo. Now, even though Bartok was writing essentially a new musical language, the Bartok musical language, every composer is influenced by past composers. And there are three composers that definitely influenced Bartok's style, and they would be Bach, Beethoven, and Debussy. And each of these three composers contributed something different to Bartok's style. In the case of Bach, well, he's known as the counterpoint expert. Counterpoint is two or more rhythmically independent melodies. And Bartok is a great contrapuntal writer. He loves writing counterpoint, so he was definitely influenced by Bach. Beethoven influenced Bartok's architecture. And when I speak of architecture, I mean the form of the piece. For instance, Bartok likes to write in sonata form. Sonata form, I've spoken about in prior episodes, it consists of four main sections, the exposition, the development, the recapitulation, and the coda. One of the reasons Beethoven is so notable in Western European music is his expansion of sonata form. As compared to earlier composers like Mozart, Beethoven redefined what you can do in sonata form within the Romantic style. And finally, the French composer Debussy is known for innovating a coloristic approach to sonorities. So with Bartok, he treats sonorities or sounds in the same way that Debussy did, treating them as particular colors. And he accomplishes this through a variety of means. His textures are very innovative, the way he voices a chord, the way he spaces the notes out, and the particular way that he will score a chord for various groups of instruments. Another thing we need to remember is that Bartok spent many years researching folk music, not just from Hungary, but many other countries. So in this concerto, the melodies are definitely inspired by Hungarian folk music. And in the spirit of Bach, sometimes he plays them backwards or upside down. Let's listen to the first few measures of the first movement, where the low strings play a very ominous melody, followed by the upper strings doing these really creepy tremolos, and also playing sul ponticello, over the bridge of the instrument. Now the melody at the very beginning with the low strings went like this. Remember, an interval is the space between any two notes. And the predominant interval in that melody that I just played is a perfect fourth. And what happens with a lot of Bartok's music is he uses harmonies based on fourths, not just melodies. That's called quartal harmonies. Usually, in traditional Western European music, chords are not based on fourths, they're based on thirds. 
If you have a triad, C, E, G, from C to E is the third, and from E to G is a third. And you could also build other chords out of that, like sevenths and ninths, but they're based on thirds. But in 20th century music, composers are experimenting with building chords from different intervals, like fourths or fifths. Now following that, the upper strings have an opening and closing figure doing tremolos, where they move the bow rapidly up and down against one, or it could even be more than one note. So the last note of the low strings was this, and then the upper strings come in. Now what Bartok did there, and this is a very common procedure in 20th century music, Bartok is choosing notes that he did not have in the lower strings. The lower strings notes were C-sharp, F-sharp, B, A, E, F-sharp, C-sharp. But then when the upper strings come in, you have a note that we haven't had before that's foreign to those notes, C natural, and then followed by a D natural. And since harmonies that are based on fourths are not indicating a particular key, in other words, we don't feel like we're in the key of C sharp major or whatever, these new notes that come in with the upper strings sound very fresh and very new and give a completely different flavor to what we heard before. And that was just a few measures of music. But that's what composers try to do. They try to create tension by introducing notes that sound fresh because they were not in the collection of notes that we heard before. And this is something Bartok loves to do in his music, which is very similar to tonal music. Like, for instance, Beethoven and Mozart, when they want to create some tension, what do they do? They introduce a new chord that's foreign to the key that they're in, or maybe they completely change the key so that you get a new fresh key. And remember before I was talking about quartal harmony, that's harmony that's based on the interval of a fourth, and in the very beginning of the piece, he has a melody that's based on fourths. Well, later on in the movement, he develops that with another melody that's based on fourths, and he plays it in the brass, and it's a very impressive part of the movement. The theme starts like this. That begins with a fourth. And then it steps up a fourth. And then it goes down two fourths. Now, this is a good example also of the concerto and the concerto for orchestra, because the entire brass section plays around with this melody. And towards the end of the excerpt, ask yourself, what kind of compositional technique is Bartók using there? It's a technique that's been used by many, many composers.
Now, if you're a sharp listener, you might have noticed towards the middle of that excerpt, Bartok treats the melody in inversion, which means he turns the intervals upside down. So if the interval had been originally going up by a fourth, instead he goes down by a fourth. But throughout the excerpt, what technique was he using? He was doing imitative counterpoint. The various parts of the brass section were imitating each other, so you get kind of like an echo effect. And if you have imitative counterpoint, that's strict imitation. In other words, none of the notes change with each imitative entry. That's called a canon, C-A-N-O-N. And towards the end of that excerpt, the entire brass section was imitating each other pretty strictly. So that, that was more like a canon. You may have experienced this singing, row, row, row your boat, where everybody comes in at different times. In Bartok's second movement of Concerto for Orchestra, it really sounds like a concerto, because what he has is pairs of instruments playing particular intervals. So, for instance, he starts off with the bassoons. The bassoons are playing in sixths, followed by a pair of oboes, and the oboes are playing in thirds. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Come the clarinets playing in sevenths. Next is the flutes playing in fifths. trumpets playing in seconds. And following this, Bartok has a middle section where the brass is playing a chorale. So you can see he's featuring first sections of the orchestra and also individual players with each of those woodwinds, and then the trumpets were featured in pairs of players, and that's exactly what happens when you have a concerto. The third movement is a slow movement, and it's marked elegy. And this is an example of Bartok's night music. 
Bartok's night music, and he has this in a few pieces, it's an eerie atmospheric soundscape that explores textures and the coloristic aspects of sonorities. So in that way, it's very much like Debussy, because in Debussy's Impressionism, he loves to explore color and the sonorities and the way that he voices the chords. In other words, the way the notes are arranged in the chords. In this movement, Bartok actually brings back a theme that he used in the first movement. I haven't played this theme for you yet, but I am going to now because I want you to get an appreciation of how the character of the theme changes when he brings it back in the third movement. The first movement, the character is very different. It's not night music. So that when he brings it back in the third movement, it's exactly the same melody, but because now he's composing night music, the character changes. It's, it, it feels a lot different. Now remember, this is not variation on a theme, because variation on a theme, the composer will change the notes, change the rhythms, but the basic structure of the theme is intact. This is the theme itself, but the way he orchestrates it and the way that he harmonizes the theme is different. It's another case of Bartok's musical magic when he could transform a theme, leaving the notes intact, but changing the character. So first, here's the theme as we hear it in the first movement. Following that, it goes into another theme, but now here's that theme in the third movement in his night music. So besides the way he harmonized it both times, in the first instance, there's more of a regular rhythm to it, which is given to us with the bass. But then when we hear it in the third movement, the bass drops out. So in the first time, there's more of a sense of urgency. And in the second time, it's more an atmosphere. It's a texture. In the fourth movement, Bartok's sense of humor comes out. It's called an interrupted intermezzo, and it has very lighthearted melodies. But one of the melodies really made this movement famous because supposedly it's based on a theme that was written by Shostakovich in his Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad Symphony. The first movement of the Seventh Symphony contains a theme that's supposed to be depicting German forces closing in on Leningrad, which used to be called Petrograd and then later it was called St. Petersburg. And this occurred in 1942. 
And Shostakovich is trying to depict the soldiers getting closer and closer to the city. So the march starts out very softly, and it gets louder and louder, and, and then finally they besiege the city. Uh, I should point out that the theme itself is not really Shostakovich's theme, because he based it on another theme from Franz Lehár's The Merry Widow. So the story goes is that while Bartok was in America, and this is towards the end of his life, as I said, he heard Symphony Number no. 7 by Shostakovich on the radio, and he thought the theme was ridiculous, so he decided to lampoon it in the fourth movement of his concerto for orchestra. And after you hear the theme, and by the way, the way Bartok presents it is a more comical version of Shostakovich's theme. After the theme, Bartok does an orchestral raspberry and a thumbing of the nose. And the only way you can really appreciate that is to hear it. So here is that portion of movement four. I'm sure my friend Jerry Felker, who I interviewed in the last episode, will really appreciate those trombone glissandos. Now, I should point out that this is disputed, this story, because it's not like Bartok ever admitted lampooning Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, and his family members have disputed it. But if you ask certain professors of music and musicologists, it's widely accepted as being true. But I'm not convinced, because there's no documentary evidence to actually prove it. I will say that the timing definitely works out, because... Bartok definitely would have heard that symphony on the radio because it came out when he was writing his concerto. As to the final fifth movement, well, that really has to be heard from beginning to end to fully appreciate it. Well, that could be said of the entire concerto for orchestra. So I'm just going to play you a little portion just to tease you. The first little excerpt I want to play is one of my favorites because it sounds as if Bartok is going to begin a fugue. Now remember, a fugue is a composition dating back to well, first the Renaissance and then the Baroque era, where there are imitative entries in the beginning of the composition. So you have a melody, it's imitated, then it could be imitated again, and then again, and then you have episodes developing that melody or sometimes more than one melody. In this case, he begins the fugue, but then the orchestra kind of says, I don't feel like doing this, I think I'll do something else. Well, this turns out to be a musical feint because listen to what happens a little bit later. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that was a different theme, but in this case, he's more serious because he goes on with it. It's not a full-blown fugue, even though he works with this melody after this excerpt. It's more of a fugato, which is simply a piece that has elements of a fugue, although it doesn't follow the course of a fugue from beginning to end. We really hear his sense of humor with this theme again, because it begins bom, 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 which is a completely tonal subject. It's almost comically simplistic, but on purpose. And then after that, which is kind of a jazz lick. So he really has a sense of humor with this theme. By the way, if you take the first three notes of that theme and play them backwards, you have Richard Strauss's famous Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Remember that? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra is definitely one of his most accessible and popular works, so I really recommend listening to it from beginning to end. As with a lot of 20th century music, it does take patience, but it's well worth it. And that particular recording that I was using was James Levine conducting the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Hope to see you next time, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.